So the words in this passage are kind of scary, and the truth is some of you guys think you like to be scared. Uh, I know some of you are in here, some of you sitting, sitting next to somebody and you don't even know, they don't even know that you're one of those people that think you like to be scared. Like you like horror movies. Some of you like horror movies. Don't raise your hand. Don't, like we're not going to do that. Like I don't want to point you out, but like some of you are like, oh, I love horror movies. I love a good scary movie, make me feel really scared. I like that. These same people that think, like, I want to go to haunted houses. I'm not talking about the Christian version of that, Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, or whatever the nonsense that is. Like, I'm talking about a real haunted house. Like, you know, I just love being scared. It's so awesome to be scared. And you feel like, yeah, that's, that's me. Well, here's the deal. It, if you set up a camera inside those haunted houses to just capture a picture at that moment when they, they feel the fear, like, it, it doesn't really look like it's as fun as I think that they thought it was going to be. Uh, check this out. I mean, it's, it's funny, but not necessarily fun. It doesn't look like they're having fun. It looks like sheer terror right there has taken over. Uh, here's, here's one. I don't know what's going on here, but this girl's apparently an Aggie, and she has seen the Longhorns, because so she's got that th- horns down. Um, but it's terror. Like, and, then, and you're scrolling through these pictures like, oh, wait, that's a serial killer. Okay, he's not scared at all. That's a, <laughs> can I identify that for some time? And then, I don't know, have you ever... Did you ever know that you could actually hear a picture? Because I can hear that picture, and it hurts my ears. Um, that's, that's a really good one. And then that, that, that poor girl's trying to get out of there, and everybody's holding her back. <laughs> she is, you know, you're staying with us. That, that doesn't look like fun. It looks, like, it looks horrible. It looks like the scariest environment imaginable. That's all you had to say, right? And so this, this idea of, oh, I like to be afraid, and then you come face-to-face with real fear, and you're like, wait, I don't, I don't like that at all, but... I don't like that. I don't, I'm not one of these people. I do not like horror movies. I'm a, a, like, I stay away from them. I don't go to haunted houses. I do not want to be afraid or feel fear on purpose. I don't know. But yet here I am preaching through Hebrews. <laughs> and man, it, it keeps coming back to this, these warnings that like, it, it kind of keeps escalating in the fear factor of this whole thing. He keeps, he keeps bringing up like this warning, like don't turn away, There's, it's, it's, it's bad, it's very bad if you do that. And, and maybe some of you kind of like that, maybe some of you appreciate that. I remember before we started Crosspoint, I, be, I, was, I served as an interim pastor, a church who uh, had lost their pastor and they were looking for a new pastor. I just came in to preach for them for about 13 months in Plano. And it was, it was a great experience. This church had kind of gone through some difficult times, and so I was there, and I just felt like I'm going to encourage them, point them the gospel, remind them of the truth, of who Jesus is. And I did that for 13 months, and on the, when they finally found a pastor, they felt like, this is so good, Lance is leaving, let's throw a party. And so they had a reception, and they basically just lined up to tell me thanks. And it was kind of like an obli- obligation type thing, but we had some really good moments and some good times, and so these people were coming by, and a lot of them gave me gifts, which was really cool, because I ended up with like $345 worth of Whataburger gift cards that night. <laughs> Those people really knew me. They really knew me. And so, but people would come by and they would say, hey, thanks, loved it, we'll miss you, whatever. And I would say, yeah, I'll miss you too. And just, we said the things. And this one couple, I remember this elderly couple came up to me and the, and the husband, the man, he was like, oh, Lance, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed your preaching. Just all the encouragement. You've really helped us. Thank you. I was like, oh, thanks for saying that. I've had a great time. It's been, it's been awesome. And then I turned to look at his wife, and she's just standing there, and she's just looking at me. She hadn't said a word, and it kind of felt awkward for a second. Like, she's, I think it's your turn to speak. And I don't know what, I guess she felt the awkwardness because she just looked at me, and she goes, well, I prefer fire and brimstone myself. 
<laughs> I don't I don't know how to respond. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm I'm not your guy, but maybe 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 like that. Like Hebrews has a lot of that in it. There, there's the writer of Hebrews is is mainly encouraging us, but he warns us because he he that's a form of the encouragement. Because here's what the Bible does: it's designed to give us this healthy sense of fear of God, of His power and His authority. There's there's supposed to be a healthy sense, not 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 afraid in the sense like I'm afraid that I'm going to be destroyed and lose my salvation, but afraid of like. I, I know he has all the power and all the authority, and so I, I have this healthy sense that the writer of Hebrews seems to bring up time and time and time again. And these warning passages, they start off kind of soft, and then they kind of just get more and more serious as he, as he goes on, as he develops his case. And so I want, you to, I want you to see that. I want you to kind of understand where we've been as we've walked through Hebrews, um, and specifically in these warning passages. So in chapter 2, his warning was that we will drift away if we don't hold fast to the gospel. There's this tendency in all of us to forget the gospel, to wander away from the gospel, to forget that Jesus is better. Even between Sundays, like Sunday to Sunday, we can forget he's better and we can wander away from him. And so he's saying, hey, hold fast to the gospel. Remember the gospel so you don't drift away from him. Drifting will, will not lead you where you're wanting to go. In chapter 3, he said, we will turn away if we stop trusting and believing God. We'll turn away when we stop trusting him, when we stop obeying him, stop believing him. And that was when he pointed us back to the exodus and the people that God rescued out of slavery in Egypt. And then he was leading them through the wilderness and he was doing amazing things for them. And they would rejoice in that and be thankful for that. And then the next challenge would come and they would forget. And they, would, they, uh, they wouldn't trust him with the next thing, and they wouldn't believe in him for the next thing. And it ended up being a, a severe punishment for many of them in that wilderness. And he says, hey, if you stop trusting, you stop believing, you will turn away from this. And that's a warning for us. Don't turn away. In chapter 6, it began to get even more serious. And he basically said there are serious consequences when we fall away. There's serious consequences for anyone who's experienced this, who's tasted this, who's been a part of this, and then they, they turn away and they stop believing. That, like, how will that person ever come back? If, they, if they've experienced it and then still turn away, how will that person ever be brought back? And there's a serious uh, tone to his warning in chapter 6, and it only gets more serious here in chapter 10. Because the warning in chapter 10 is that there is no hope for those who reject Christ. There's no hope for those who reject Christ. And that, that seems to be what he's saying here. In verse 26, look back at your text. Hebrews 10, verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But instead, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You go down to verse 31, he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's, there's a, it's designed to make us like pay attention. It's designed to wake us up. Like, oh, wait, I don't want that to be me. This is, this is scary. And he's saying this, this like, somewhere, there's no hope for those who reject Christ to try to grab our attention. But here's, we can just be afraid of that and go, you know what? I don't think I'm going to read that passage again. I'm going to move forward. Or we can, like, ask the question, what, what's he really trying to say here? And that's where I hope that we can help each other because I don't, I don't want to just be afraid. I want to I understand what he's trying to say so that I can understand exactly what my response should be. And so in order to understand what this is about, we have to understand what it's not about. 
That's where we can start here. What this warning is not about, and here's, here's the first thing, it's not about struggling with sin. I don't know if, you, if you're like me, you read this. If you go on sinning deliberately, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, but just expectation of judgment. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've messed up yesterday. I, I, I'm, I'm always struggling with sin. That's part of, part of life, right? And if I go on sinning, there's no sacrifice. He's not talking about just an ongoing struggle with sin because the Bible teaches that that's part of our life in the here and now. A few weeks ago, I was preaching in Hebrews, and I, I, I remember saying this statement, something like this, that if you still struggle with sin and you have temptation, you find yourself still every now and then giving in to sin, that the Bible calls you a normal Christian. And so struggling with sin is not what he's talking about. That's not the warning, that to go on sinning deliberately is not to struggle with sin and temptation that's part of our lives in this fallen world. 1 John 1, verse 8, he says, it says it this way, some similar thought. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's not a point where we come to this enlightened state where we're like, hey, yeah, I've, I've, I've conquered sin. I'm good. I'm, I don't give in to that anymore. No, the life in the here and now, the fallen world, is a struggle with sin. It sometimes feels like one step forward and a couple steps back. It's that's a part of it, and that, that's not what he's talking about. I'm not talking about just the ongoing struggle that you and me and all of us face every single day, minute by minute in some cases. He's not talking about struggling with sin. This warning is not about besetting sins. A besetting sin is that one sin that keeps tripping you up. It's that one that you just, for whatever reason, you feel like you're especially susceptible to that temptation, and it keeps trapping you, it keeps tricking you, it keeps, you keep giving into it. And it's the sin that you're fighting against and you're, you, you know that God has given us the resources, the spirit lives inside of us and he's there to enable us to overcome temptation. He provides a way of escape with every temptation. You know all that truth, but for whatever reason, this one area keeps tripping you up. It's besetting sin. It's setting you back in your pursuit of Jesus. And that's, that's not what he's talking about here either. Because in both those situations, when we struggle with sin or even a sin that keeps getting us and keeps weighing us down, we're constantly in the state of like feeling remorse over that, which leads to confession of that sin and leads to repentance, turning away from it and turning back to God and being cleansed and restored once again. And so the, the struggle, as we continue, that's not the, the danger here. That's not the warning of deliberately keeping on sinning. The besetting sin that keeps tripping you up and you have to keep turning and repenting and confessing, like that's a part of the journey. It's part of sanctification of God making us more like Jesus. And it's, we're all on that journey together. So he's not talking about that. So don't, don't be afraid in that context. So what, what is he talking about? And I think this warning, it's basically this. This warning is about rejecting God's authority and flagrantly continuing in sin. That's what he says in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately. And what he's talking about is the person who has seen and heard the gospel and seen and heard who Jesus is and what he's done and decided, don't need that in my life. Now, that's true for anyone, right? This is the idea that there's no hope for anyone who rejects Christ. But specifically in Hebrews, he's talking about people who are part of the, part of the church, Visibly, it looks like they're one of us. It looks like they're part of the, part of the family of God, but they've, they may have even made a public decision at some point, but they've never put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so 
they've seen Jesus, they understand the gospel, but at some point they decide that that's not for them and they reject it. And the way that you kind of see in this passage that that's what he's talking about is when you start looking deeper into it. In verse 28, he says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, which means there's an old covenant, the, the law, and if you broke that law, there was consequences, there was punishment. And then look at verse 29. It says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's rejected this? How much worse will it, if, if there was punishment for someone who broke the Old Testament law, how much worse will that punishment be for someone who has seen Jesus, who has heard the gospel, and even maybe said they were part of that and then walked away from that? How much worse punishment will that be? And then he gives us some descriptive, descriptive statements about what that looks like. And here's what it is. It's a person who's rejecting Jesus as the Son of God. Look, look at verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, rejected Jesus as the Son of God? He's also rejecting the work of Jesus on the cross and says, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross is our only hope that we were sinners cut off from a holy God and Jesus made a way where there was no way. All of Hebrews is talking about that. He has given us access to God. He's made us right with God because when we put our faith and trust in him, he gives us his righteousness. So Jesus has done all that for us. And what this person that he's warning us about has done is saying, yeah, I don't need, I don't need that. I don't need Jesus. I reject his authority in my life and I don't need the, the, the cross. I'm fine without it. I don't want it. And the other thing he seems to be saying here is he's he's rejecting the Holy Spirit who brought the gospel near. So it says here at the end, he was sanctified and and has outraged the spirit of grace. Three strikes and you're out. You reject Jesus as the Son of God. Reject the work of Jesus on the cross and reject the Holy Spirit who brings the gospel near to us. If you reject all that, there's there's no hope for you. In the context of Hebrews, the the writer here, the author is writing to a people who were tempted to do that. They were tempted to, even though they had made some kind of profession of faith, they're tempted to abandon that, walk away from that, reject that, and go back to their old life. The, the writer of Hebrews, and we've said this before, but I want to say it again just because I want us to be clear on this. The writer of Hebrews in the Bible doesn't teach that you can lose your salvation. That's not what we're talking about. What, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to warn us about, remind us of, is if you're a true Christ follower, if you've really put your faith and trust in Jesus, then Jesus has moved you from death to life, and the result of that, the evidence of that, is that you will keep following him to the end. And if you turn away from him at some point and never turn back around, it's, it's evidence not that you've lost your faith, it's evidence that, not that you've lost your salvation, it's evidence that you never really had it. And so he's writing in the context of people who were thinking about, I don't know, I don't know if this is worth it, I don't know if I should keep doing this. And the context there is the same context today. I mean, we got people that make the headlines in the Christian circles because they were Christian leaders, written books, pastored churches, written songs, all these things that have now denounced the faith, walked away from the faith. They've decided that they don't believe this anymore because it doesn't match their feelings, their experience, and so they've completely rejected this. That's the warning that he's talking about. And guys, because it's happened to people in prominent positions of Christianity and leadership roles and worship leader, all those kind of stuff, then it's a warning for every single one of us. Anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. The, the evidence that we're looking for in our lives is that we keep trusting him and we don't turn away. We don't, 
We don't drift. When we drift, we turn back to him. That's the evidence that gives us the assurance that we're looking for. And so this warning is about the person who has seen the gospel, maybe even intellectually embraced some of the facts of the gospel, but they've never put their faith and trust in Jesus, and then they've walked away from it. And that's what he seems to be warning us about. First, First John 1, 8, we just looked at. The two verses right before that give even more context to this, and I think it helps us understand this. In verse 6, he says this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You get it? If we say we're one of his, if we say we're part of the family of God, yeah, I'm a Christ follower, but our lives don't show it. We continually choose darkness. We can deliberately go on sinning. Guess what? We're deceiving ourselves. We're not really, like the evidence that we're one of his is that we're not walking in darkness. We may slip into darkness every now and then, and we may drift into darkness every now and then, but we don't stay there because we're his children. And so that's what he seems to be talking about. Now look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So if you say you're one of his and you continually, deliberately go on sinning and choose darkness, Nah, you, you don't really have any reason for confidence. You should take this warning seriously. But if your goal is to walk in the light, and you know you don't do it perfectly. I don't do it perfectly. I, I slip into darkness every now and then. But my, I want to walk in the light. I want to follow him. I want to I, I respond to who he is and what he's done by following him in obedience and walking in the light. That's my desire. And I know that I can't do that on my own, but I'm going to trust him more and more and, and believe him more and more and let him produce that in my life. That's evidence that he's got you, that you're one of his, and he's going to keep you all the way to the end. It's evidence that his blood has is the sacrifice you needed for your sins. It's atoned, it's cleansed all of it. If you go on sinning deliberately, you're not really one of his, and that sacrifice doesn't apply to you. And so that's why this warning is here. Now, the writer of Hebrews, um, he gives us these warnings, but he, he, he never stops there. He always follows it up with encouragement. He says, hey, you, you need to watch out for this, but you know what? That's not who you are. I know, that you're, I know you're not gonna do that. And so he turns this passage from 32 through 39, and, and back end of that is all encouragement that no, no, no. Obviously, pay attention to the warning, but you're not going to do that because God is faithful. And so what he does here is he gives us the, um, the antidote to apostasy, this idea that I've seen it, I've heard it, I, I kind of did some things. But then I decided it wasn't for me and I turned away from that. That's apostasy. And here's the antidote for that. And what he says in verses 32 through 39 is basically this. Look back to look forward. Look back and see how God has brought you so far. And it will help you look forward with anticipation and trust and and belief that he's going to get you through it. And it's it's really cool how he does this because he kind of does it in a, in a surprising way in some sense. Verse 32, he says, but recall the former days. Look back. Remember, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And so here's what he's saying. As you look back, what you're going to do is you're going to remember God's faithfulness. You're not going to look back and think, man, I was really, really good back then. I was so strong. No, 
when we look back, we're de- it's designed for us to look back and see the hand of God at work in our lives so that we remember his faithfulness, not ours. It's always about his faithfulness. It's never about us. And so we remember his faithfulness. And the first thing that he points us to as we remember God's faithfulness is that we remember it in the endurance he gives us in suffering. That's why this is a little surprising because he doesn't say, hey, remember the good old days? Remember when it was easy? Following Jesus was just like everything was awesome and it was great. All your problems were taken care of and you didn't have any more. Remember that? No. What he says is remember when you were suffering and God was with you? Why? Because, man, those are the most significant times for many of us in our lives. When we go through a very difficult thing and we feel the presence of God closer to us than we may feel in the normal daily life, like all of a sudden we know he moved close to me. He sustained me. I wouldn't have made it through that without him. Remember those moments. They're, they, at the time, they're, they're hard and they're painful and they bring so much sorrow. But on the other side, when we look back, all we really see is God's faithfulness to us. Which is exactly what he says here in verse 32. When, remember, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. You endured the suffering. Why? Because God was faithful to you. You got through that difficult situation. Why? Because God was faithful to you. So look back and remember God's faithfulness in those low moments when you knew he got you through it or you wouldn't have made it through it. And know that when when you look back like that, then the next time that pain comes, the next time the suffering comes, I'll look back and it'll help me look ahead. It'll help me to trust him. Oh, he got me through that. He'll get me through this. So he says, remember God's faithfulness and the endurance that he gives us in suffering. And he says, remember God's faithfulness and the love and compassion he gives us for others. Go back to your text. Sometimes, verse 33, at the end of 33, sometimes being partners with those so treated. So sometimes you suffered and sometimes you partnered with those who were suffering. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. So in, in Hebrews, people were persecuted for their faith. They were, they were suffering. They were, they were being imprisoned for their faith. And sometimes that happened to you, and you, God helped you endure. And sometimes it happened to your friend, and the evidence was that people came alongside them. And he says, remember that. Remember how you gave love and compassion for others. And if you gave love and compassion for others, guess what that is the evidence of? God's work in your life. Because <laughs> I don't normally think about others first. I think about myself. That's how I'm wired, right? And so anytime I see evidence in my life that I'm thinking outside of myself and I'm thinking about somebody else, I'm trying to figure out how do I meet their needs and not worried as much about my needs, that's the evidence of God's faithfulness in my life put on display. People were being in prison and people were coming alongside them, showing they, they, they understood this principle that we love because he loved us first. And when I see his love and I understand his love, it, it, it produces a love for others in my heart that isn't there without that. And so remember that. Look back on that. Remember God's faithfulness and the love and compassion that he gives us for others. And remember God's faithfulness and the joy he gives us despite our circumstances. If you go back to the text, he says, and you joyfully, verse 34, the end of second half, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
So not only were they being put in prison, but people were taking away their house, their property, all their stuff. And they were suffering persecution and affliction and reproach and imprisoned for their faith and people taking all their possessions. And their response to that was joy. I'm sure it didn't make them happy. I'm sure it it, it made them sad. But there was this deep-seated joy, peace, comfort, knowing that What I have waiting for me in heaven is greater than any possession here on earth. And so there was this joy. Take it all away. It's it's fine. And guess what, guys? When you respond to suffering and you respond to loss and you respond to hardship with joy, that's evidence of God's faithfulness to you. That, That doesn't make sense to an unbelieving world. When we go through difficult situations and we go through pain and we go through suffering and we come out on the other side... Not that we liked it, not that we enjoyed it, not that we would want to do it again, but we come out on the other side with some kind of joy that's like, I don't even know if I can explain it. Man, that's the evidence that he's pointing us back to. Look back on that time when you lost things and you still found joy. It's because of God's faithfulness to us. And when you look back on these kinds of things, it it absolutely will help you look forward. If I, if I see God's faithfulness in my past, when I, when I see something come or something surprises me, or I didn't, man, I didn't know, it'll help me trust him. It'll help me keep following, help me keep believing him. And so he says, look back to look forward. Remember God's faithfulness, and the other side of that is anticipate the reward that God has promised. Anticipate the reward coming to us. In verse 35, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. (laughs) In verse 39, he says, Hey, we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed. I warned you about them, but that's not who you are. You're not going to shrink back. You're not going to be destroyed. You're not going to turn away from this. You're going to keep believing because God is faithful to you. He's been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful in the the future. He'll be faithful right now. He says, we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we're of those who have faith, continue on, preserve our souls. That's who you are. His encouragement is, yeah, make sure you don't turn into that person, but you won't because God's so faithful to you anticipate the future, anticipate. He, he got you through this, he'll get you through that. He got you through that, he'll, he has a reward waiting for you all, for all eternity, anticipate that. It's so important. Our culture, we don't do this enough. We don't think about heaven enough. We don't think about the future enough. We don't think about what he has for us enough because for whatever reason, I think we just get really complacent and happy and comfortable with what we have now. We're so blessed. It's, it's somewhat easy in some sense to, to follow Jesus right here and right now. And it causes us sometimes to not look forward with longing like the Bible teaches over and over. Look forward. This world's not your home. And it's not wrong that we have blessings. Like we should enjoy the blessings. We should appreciate it. We should be thankful. We should be generous with it. We should make the most of all our opportunities right here. But the Bible says this is not home for us. We have a home waiting for us for all eternity, and it's better than this one. So we got to figure out how to live for that. We got to figure out how to live with thankfulness for the moment, but knowing that there's a moment coming that's forever that's better. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
for this light momentary affliction. Hold your spot. Light momentary affliction, he's describing some really, really intense pain and suffering and some really, really crazy levels of persecution. And he calls it light momentary affliction. And the reason he does, because he's comparing it to what he has coming as a reward all eternity. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What God has for us, what he has promised us, is better than anything we have here. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Let's talk about focus, talking about heart, talking about passion. For the things that are seen are transient, temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So anticipate the reward coming for you. Not because you're earning that reward. That should give you more confidence. You can't earn that reward. I can't do anything. I can't work really hard and keep on going. I'm just going to keep going, keep going, and then I'll earn the reward of heaven. No, it's a gift, and it's a gift that he promised to those who put their faith and trust in him. It can't be taken away because you don't earn it. Jesus came and lived a perfect life for us, a sinless life, and he gives us his righteousness. He, he took our place on the cross and takes the punishment for our sin, and then he conquers that by coming out of the grave, and he's alive to di- to, today forever. And that's where the reward comes from. That's where the confidence comes from. That's why we know that his reward is sure. He's going to give it. He's promised to give it to us. So anticipate it. Look for it. Trust in him. <laughs> some of you know that Tim Keller, pastor, author, man, he's written some amazing books. Had, his ministry has impacted so many people, including mine, my life. Uh, he passed away Friday. He, he was battling cancer for uh, a while, and he, um, that battle ended, and he passed away on Friday. And on uh, Thursday or Wednesday, his son um, posted on on. Tim's uh, Twitter account, a health update, and they knew the end was coming. They knew it was really, really close. And this was the update from Michael Keller, Tim's son, on his, uh, on his Twitter from, I, I think it was Thursday, it might have been Wednesday. He said, today, dad is being discharged from the hospital to receive hospice care at home. Over the past few days, he has asked us to pray with him often. He expressed many times through prayer his desire to go home to be with Jesus. His family is very sad because we all wanted more time, but we know he has very little at this point. In prayer, he said two nights ago, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. And that's that's how we should live. I'm thankful for everything he's given me right now, and I'm going to make the most of it. But, man, I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait for all eternity with him. I'm, I'm ready to go home. This is a good place, but it's not home. And home is promised a reward from Jesus because of his blood shed for us, because of his mercy, his love, his grace, and can't be taken away. So let's keep trusting him. Let's be thankful in the moment and let's long for heaven where we get to spend it with him for all eternity. When we hear the words like, I'm sure Tim heard on Friday, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's be the people that live like that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this truth that's in your word. We, we need all of it, God. We need the warnings. 
We need to be awakened from time to time out of our complacency. We all tend to drift. It's a temptation to turn away, and we need those warnings. God, we also need the encouragement. We're so thankful for the encouragement that you give us through your word. We're thankful for all of that. We're thankful for the fact that you've put us in this body where we get to walk this journey and live this out, trusting you together. We're not alone, and we need each other. We're thankful for the gospel of Jesus who makes all that possible for us, that all of our hope is found in him and what he did for us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.